As you know, we live in a culture that is bent on dethroning God and systematically destroying everything that has any semblance of worship to the one true God. And so once again, we have come to that time in our worship service where we will do all we can to reclaim that throne and his dominion in our lives as we look into his word and once again exalt the God of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we reflect upon his person and work. So I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. For those of you who have not been with us, we have been going verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew for many, many months now, and we find ourselves in verse verses one through eleven in Matthew twenty one. Follow along as I read this text. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now, this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, Gentile, a gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those followed after him were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This morning I speak to you about the king of kings riding upon a donkey. What a concept of contradiction. How utterly incongruent. What an inconceivable combination. The king of kings riding a donkey. Peasants ride donkeys. Kings ride gallant steeds. Now, why would the king of kings, the offspring of David, the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel, the heir of all things, Jehovah God, the Lord of hosts, ride a donkey? What kind of coronation is this? What kind of triumph is this? Where is his conquering army, army complete with sword and spear? Where are his charioteers? Where are the archers? And where are his hostages and prisoners? 
And as we look at the scene, where do you see wagons of great treasure and processions of dignitaries and noblemen and loyal subjects? Where are the blaring trumpets? I see many shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But what is he saving them from? Certainly not Rome. And how is he going to save them? Friends, I ask you, what kind of king is this? Where where is the golden crown studded with jewels? Where is his robe of purple to adorn his person? Where is his golden scepter? And where is his palace and his throne? And where can you find posted along the way and on the buildings his edicts and his decrees and his laws? And where are the royal enforcers of the law? And his entourage of tax collectors. What kind of king is this? And what kind of kingdom must he have? The king of kings on a donkey. Well, friends, this is a familiar yet fascinating passage. And I would submit to you this morning as we endeavor to ascend the heights of this passage of divine revelation. We are going to, over the course of the next few minutes, gaze across the glorious spectacle of God's mercy and his love. Because here we see the Savior, meek and lowly, the King of Kings, not coming to ask his subjects to go and die for him. But in fact, the other way around, he is coming to die for them and for us. And here we witness the Son of God, not in his glorification, but in his humiliation. As he voluntarily comes not to conquer Rome but to conquer sin. And imagine, though he is the almighty sovereign that has created the very universe that he rules, he's not riding in on a great white steed towards a throne, but rather he rides on a lowly beast of burden towards a cross, a condescension that defies the imagination. Well, today we are going to observe our Savior entering the very city that he established. This is that place of Mount Moriah where Abraham's faith was tested and confirmed as he was willing to offer up his son Isaac. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant came to rest, the Ark being the symbol of his glorious presence. This is Mount Zion, the city of David, that holy city upon a hill that once contained Solomon's temple and now contains the second temple in this time in which Jesus approaches it. Friends, this is Jerusalem that he is approaching, that city of which he has earlier lamented in Luke 13, saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets in stones. Those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate 
And I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which, by the way, is a reference to his second coming. And here, my friends, we see the Messiah King. Not entering this city with joy, but with immense sorrow. In fact, as he enters, we will see that he enters with tears running down his cheeks. Again, Luke's gospel tells us in Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you. When your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And folks, this was literally fulfilled a few years later in 70 A.D. when Titus Flavius Vespasianasus that great Roman general laid siege to Jerusalem. And as you may recall, in siege warfare, they would take rocks and build a wall all the way around the city that would take months to do. And psychologically, it would communicate to the people within the city that there is no escape. No one will come in. No one will leave. They would build rock stables for their horses they would station garrisons all around a city as they did with Jerusalem. And they laid siege to Jerusalem all through the summer, slowly starving the inhabitants of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And then finally they began to attack the city in various sections. And many of these same people who this day are praising Jesus as he comes into the city are going to be murdered by the Romans in A.D. 70. And of course, as you will recall in your history, the Romans came in, they utterly massacred the people, they totally destroyed the temple, and they took the remaining captives to Rome to be mocked and butchered in the Roman circus and the gladiatorial bouts just one of many judgments because, as Jesus said in Luke 19, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Our Lord's entrance now into Jerusalem marks the beginning of what is commonly known as the Passion Week, where he will come now and he will suffer and he will die and then he will be gloriously resurrected, which is our great hope. And to help us grasp the astounding realities of this text, I've divided it into three sections. This morning, we will witness, first of all, a sovereign orchestration. Secondly, we will see a symbolic procession. And thirdly, a senseless coronation. And my prayer, as always, is for far, for far more than mere intellectual understanding. But I hope that you will genuinely be enlightened spiritually, causing 
certainly those of you that might be within the sound of my voice who are in rebellion to Christ to finally joyfully submit to him. And then for the rest of us who know and love Christ, that we will, after this morning, love him even more and fall more deeply into service and love for him and get lost once again in the wonder of his glory and grace. First of all, we see, as I say, a sovereign orchestration as we look at this text where the omnipotent arm of God coordinates an infinite number of variables and events to accomplish what he has ordained in eternity past. And you may recall that for some 30 years now, the Lord Jesus has lived in obscurity. Then for three years, he has publicly ministered. The people are all aware of who he is. For the most part, they're all aware. He has always been perfectly obedient to do his father's will. And now, unlike any other coronation in the history of the world, he enters into Jerusalem with no pomp, no, no ceremony, no magnificent pageantry. And again, all of this has been ordained in eternity past, as we will see. And so that you grasp the context here, once again, there are literally thousands of people following Jesus, many before him, some behind him, thousands around him. Many of the multitudes have followed him up from Jericho. Many people now are pilgrims going to Jerusalem for the Passover. Others joined in the, the, the march, shall we say, from Bethpage, a small village close to Bethany, which was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in John's gospel, in John 12, beginning in verse 1, we read how that he visited them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, six days before the Passover. And certainly he needed to find comfort and strength from their fellowship, knowing that he was to be the Passover lamb. And it's interesting that even when he was with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, even there, Satan dogged the Savior using his greedy hypocritical and traitorous servant Judas to harass him. You will recall it was at that time when Judas feigned concern for the poor, complaining about Mary who was anointing the Savior's feet with expensive perfume and wiping his feet with her hair. And you will recall that the Lord rebuked him in John 12 saying, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So it's the time of the Passover, and thousands of the Jewish faithful are making their annual pilgrimage. And we know from some of the census records of that era, especially some of the records ten years later from this particular event, that there would be about... Two million worshipers coming there to celebrate Passover with over a quarter of a million lambs that would be slaughtered and many of them would be um, slaughtered for every 10 people. They had a there was a minimum, at least one for 10 people and many other people would would slaughter their own lamb. So there were many people there and many thousands of lambs to be butchered at that time of sacrifice. 
And so we know, therefore, that in this at this time when Jesus was was there, there there would have at least been a couple of million people there, if not more. And to add an important footnote, since, according to John, Jesus was at Bethany six days before the Passover, which was probably on Saturday, which is their Shabbat, uh, it was on the next day, Sunday, that the Jewish crowds would have come to see Jesus and according to verse or, or John 12, to see Jesus and Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So according to John 12, 12, it says that on the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So all of that to say it was more likely that it was on Monday that Jesus entered the city, not the traditional Palm Sunday. It was probably on Monday after Jesus had been at Bethany with Lazarus that he traveled through Bethpage, making his way through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. By the way, a Monday triumphal entry is also very important. If you can bear with me, this is a bit technical, but you'll see the significance here. I believe it's important because in Exodus 12, in verses 2 through 6, you read in the Mosaic law that sacrificial lambs were required for Passover, and yet they were to be selected on the 10th day of the first of the month, or of the first month of Passover. Taking, and then you were to take them into the home, and you were to love them until the time of the sacrifice on the 14th. And only a Monday triumphal entry would fulfill this very important symbolism because the year that Jesus was crucified, the 10th of Nisan was on Monday of the Passover week. And certainly this would allow the Jews to nationally take uh, Jesus, select him as the Passover lamb, at least in a symbolic way. And take him into their hearts and their homes symbolically and love him and then sacrifice him on Friday the 14th. And of course, again, all of this having been ordained and orchestrated by a sovereign God in eternity past. Further evidence of God's sovereign orchestration is found in the book of Daniel, where the prophet Daniel tells us some 600 years before it happened certainly through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He tells us actually what date Jesus would enter Jerusalem. In Daniel 9.25, we read that it was from the time of Artaxerxes' degree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, in other words, uh, from that decree of Artaxerxes until Messiah the Prince, when he would enter Jerusalem, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, literally, seven weeks and 62, or I should say seven sevens and 62 sevens, seven referring to a week of years, if you understand the Hebrew concept. And so literally, he was saying that there's going to be, from Artaxerxes' decree until Messiah the Prince comes into Jerusalem, there's going to be seven weeks, in other words, 49 years, and then another 62 weeks of, 400, of 434 years. 
And if you add the 49 plus the 434, you get 483 years, which is literally 69 sevens. I know this is technical. You don't have to remember all of it. When we get into Matthew 24 and we begin to explain Daniel's 70th week and the time of the tribulation and all of this, we'll go into it in more detail. But suffice it to say that Daniel's prophecy tells us that this period of time between Artaxerxes' decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah Prince will enter into Jerusalem is going to be 483 years. And indeed, that is precisely the case. We see that it was 483 years after Artaxerxes decreed that decree to Nehemiah. And on April 10th, 30 A.D., Messiah, the prince, was presented to the Jewish nation. A sovereign orchestration. Unlike those that would tell us and have us believe that somehow Jesus was just a prophet and a preacher and he got caught up in his own press. And before you know it, he got caught up with the crowd and much to his surprise, he ended up being crucified. No, friends, all of this was orchestrated in eternity past. Likewise, we see our Lord's triumphal yet very humble entry being predicted in Zechariah 9.9, some 500 years earlier. And by the way, this is the text that we read in verse 5 of Matthew 21, the text that, that Matthew quotes. And in, Matthew, or in Zechariah 9.9, the prophet tells us, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, friends, that was written some 500 years before it happened. So now all of these events come together. As God orchestrates them, and we see Jesus purposefully and voluntarily and obediently to the Father's will entering into Jerusalem, a sovereign orchestration. But secondly, we see it was a symbolic procession. In verse 2, we see that he sends the disciples to a predetermined, preordained location. To secure for him a donkey that is tied there and a, and a colt with her. He says, untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. By the way, Mark's gospel tells us that that's precisely what happened. That the, the mare and her colt were tied outside of a door. And when they went to untie them, a group of people asked, what are they doing or what are you doing? And they told them and they said, OK, and that was the end of it. And I might add that such foreknowledge and omniscience is yet another illustration of the deity of Christ. But I also see another fascinating truth embedded in this seemingly incidental scenario. And being a horseman, naturally, I would see this and perhaps those of you that no horses, as I do, would see this as well. Think about it. There's two donkeys here. There is a mare and her colt. By the way, many people don't understand. Very often a colt can be the same size as the mother, if not bigger. And also in Mark and Luke's gospel, the spirit of God goes to great effort to communicate to us that no one has ever sat upon this colt. 
Now, that is very significant to anybody that knows horses and certainly that knows donkeys. Because, friends, it is an absolute miracle for anyone to sit on a colt that has never been ridden. If you think I'm exaggerating it, you try that sometime. And also, if you understand anything about donkeys, you know that donkeys are extremely temperamental. They're a very suspicious and fearful animal. A friend of mine reminded me of a quote about a donkey, and it goes like this. A donkey is like a horse, and even more so. The point being that like a horse, donkeys are very afraid of man. And if I can digress yet another time, because I feel this is important, if we were to go back to Genesis 9, that chapter that tells us about that time when Noah and his family got off of the ark, there in Genesis 9, we read how that God blessed Noah and his sons after the flood, and he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then immediately he did something very fascinating. He warned them about a drastic change from what they had just experienced with the animals on the ark. And in verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 9, here's what he says. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish in the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be for food, be food for you. By the way, vegetarians hate that text. Everything that is alive shall be food for you. And I'm so glad he put that in there. And then he says, I give all to you as I gave the green plant. And indeed, we know, if you know anything about animals, certainly horses or any other herbivore, they are terrified of man. And certainly horses and donkeys are afraid of man until they get used to them, until we gain their trust. They're herbivores. We're carnivores. We smell like meat. We don't smell like hay and grass. By the way, all of that is part of the curse. In Romans 8, we read about how all of creation, how all of creation groans, all of creation, including the animal kingdom, is waiting for the second coming of Christ when the Lord will renovate the earth and will return it back to Edenic splendor, that time of the millennial kingdom, when all fear and all fear will be eradicated. We also know about donkeys that they are very aggressive. In fact, you can even drive around here. Many times out in cattle pastures, you will see they have several donkeys. And many sheep herders run donkeys with the sheep. And the reason they do that is to protect the herds from wolves and coyotes and wild dogs. But friends, again, I challenge you, go up to a young donkey and try leading him away. And then take your garment that will, to them, smell like meat and throw that garment on that animal and watch what happens. And then, more than that, you get up on that animal and try to ride it in a straight line without falling off. And let's add to this scenario a little bit. Let's have that animal walk over garments and palm branches amidst 
thousands of people waving palm branches at that animal. Friends, you will have a rodeo. I promise you. And so as I look at this, I say, my, this is that little donkey's worst nightmare. Even broke donkeys are notorious for bad manners. They're worse than horses and what we call hunting boogers. They're always looking for something to shy away from. Donkeys balk, they bite, they kick, they buck, they run off. They do that until they gain the trust of their master. Well, obviously, this little donkey had a very unique rider this time. This donkey rode his creator. And the creator miraculously calmed this little guy. So this was indeed a miracle. But folks, as I look at this, I see something more. Can I put it to you very simply? I believe that this was a foretaste of millennial blessing that the Lord was trying to communicate. Because we know that the Lord is going to come again. And I believe embedded in this subtle and seemingly incidental scenario, the Lord is communicating a great truth that, you know, someday I will return. Someday there will be a time of restoration and regeneration, both physically and spiritually. When the King of Kings returns again in glory. And by the way, that will be that time when all fear will be removed. That will be a time when peace will prevail between man and animals. That terror of man will be removed. We read in Isaiah 11 in verse six, as the prophet prophesies of this very thing at this very time. He reminds us that that will be a day when the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child will lead them. He goes on to say that the cow and the bear shall graze Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned shall put his hand in the viper's den. Friends, that will also be a time, as I believe Jesus would be communicating even through this symbolism. It's going to be the time, according to Romans 11, verse 26, when all Israel will be saved. When they will finally understand who he is. According to that text, it will be the time when the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And he says, this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, it will be that time when the father will give the son all of the nations as an inheritance. And he will, according to Psalm 2, 2, break them with the rod of iron. It will be a time of universal peace. When the root of Jesse, the scripture says, shall stand as a banner to the people and the Gentiles will seek him, referring to the Lord Jesus and his resting place shall be glorious. It will be a time also of national restoration for Israel. And you must understand that this kingdom age of which I'm now speaking was what they were hoping was going to be inaugurated when Jesus came into Jerusalem. Even the disciples were hoping this was going to be the day. That's why they were crying out, Hosanna, which means save now. 
They thought Jesus was about to deliver them from Rome. That will be that glorious time when all of the redeemed will reign with Jesus, the anointed one, as Daniel prophesied in Daniel 7:27, where we read, Then the sovereignty, the dominion and the greatness of all of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all of the dominions will serve and obey him. So, beloved, I believe that hidden in this amazing scenario where the power of Jesus canceled the effects of the curse in this young donkey that had never been ridden before was a subtle affirmation where Jesus is saying, yes, I am the almighty God, the promised Messiah who will someday accomplish all that I have promised. Indeed, the pristine happiness and peace of Eden, that time of regeneration will come. But not today. Today I ride on a beast of burden, for I must bear the burden of your sins. Today I come as the Prince of Peace to bring sacrifice so that you might have peace with God. Today I come to save you from sin, not from Rome. So today I ride the lowly animal, symbolic of humility. Not some mighty steed of a conquering king, though that day will come. I believe the Lord is saying, I I, I come to triumph today over Satan and over sin and ultimately over death. Not to triumph over the nations and the rulers of this world. And though I am the Lord of hosts and though I have an army, myriads of angels at my command My invisible army waits yet another day when I come in power and great glory. For today, my army are mere fishermen, common people, common folks. Today, my army marches on their knees and they wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Today, my subjects are not the great and powerful, not the religious and politically elite, but rather the meek and lowly. As I'm reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, when he says, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. It's as if the Lord goes on to say, for I have chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. I believe as the Lord rides into Jerusalem, he is in essence saying the only treasure that accompanies me is my love and my mercy, my grace. Today I ride towards a temple, not a palace. My destination is a cross, not a throne. And I come not to be crowned, but to be crucified. Indeed, my crown is one of thorns, not of jewels. I believe he is saying even through this incredible scenario that my robe is not a royal robe of purple, but rather a peasant's cloak because the Son of Man, unlike even the foxes that have holes and the birds that have nests, I have nowhere to even lay my head. Though I am king of kings, he is saying, my kingdom 
is not of this world. And I clutch the scepter of righteousness, not that of brute force. And my law is not written on parchment. It's not written on stone, but rather it's written on flesh, on hearts of flesh. And my decrees are not contrived by men, but rather have been breathed out by Almighty God. My edicts are not enforced by man, but by my spirit. And my subjects obey me without force, for they love my law. And it is their desire, not their duty to obey me. For indeed, I even live within them. My law is altogether lovely to them. And that's why I have said to them, all of you that are weary and heavy laden with all of the ridiculous rules that have been laid down by the religious hypocrites, come unto me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Indeed, my people love my law. They love what I love and they hate what I hate. My glory is the passion of their life. And I come and I don't demand taxes. For grace requires nothing. For indeed, I come to give, not to take. And so therefore, dear friends, we see the king of kings. Riding upon a donkey. Beloved, we have so much to learn here. Again, his kingdom is not of this world. If it were, we would all be royalty. <laughs> we would be running the world. The world would be at our beck and call. We would be in command. And I believe the, the implications of this symbolic procession are staggering, even with respect to the church. Think about this. Though we as believers are the royal subjects of the king, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here on earth. So, again, the kingdom to which we belong is not here. And even as Jesus was was meek and was lowly, likewise, the glory and the splendor and the majesty of himself and and his people awaits another day. Practically speaking, there's no place in the church for ostentatious, gaudy, elaborate cathedrals and church buildings. For ornate robes. For flamboyant vestments. You see, the earth is not the realm of rule for the church. There's nowhere that we're told to seek political power. You realize biblically we don't even have a mandate as believers to be involved in the political process. Our commission is to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all men. But as we look at the pagans, we see them seeking temporal glory. In fact, they thrive on grand ceremonies and elaborate cathedrals and mosques and pretentious garments and political aspirations and those types of things. Charles Spurgeon perfectly and very poignantly captured this thought. And I quote, he says, if it were Christ's will, he might make his saints, every one of them a prince. He might make his church rich and powerful. He might lift up his religion if he chose and make it the most magnificent and sumptuous he goes on to say in his old English way, if it were his will, 
There is no reason why all the glory we read of the Old Testament under Solomon might not be given to the church under David's greater son. But he does not come to do it. And hence, the impertinence of those who think that Christ is to be worshipped with a gorgeous architecture, with magnificent vestments, with proud processions, with the alliance of states with churches, with making the bishops of God magnificent lords and rulers, with lifting up the church herself and attempting to put her upon or to put upon her shoulders those garments that will never fit her, vestments that were never meant for her. If Christ cared for this world's glory, it might soon be at his feet. If he will to take it, who should raise a tongue against his claim or who should lift a finger against his might? But he closes in saying, but he cares not for it, end quote. Beloved, in light of this, may I just warn you to be careful with seeking some type of a glorious place within even the body of Christ as you serve the Lord. Be willing to serve in him in humility and in obscurity while living in light of future glory. Because even as the vast multitudes that surrounded Christ were, quote, worshiping him, they were doing so in selfishness and ignorance, redefining Jesus to their own liking. And there were only a few disciples that were really following him to suffering and shame. But so, too, there are only a few today that really worship the Lord in spirit and truth. Only a few really know who he is, really love him, though millions profess him. And yes, we need to, to grieve over this. We need to pray for the lost. We need to labor to exhaustion, begging people to come to Christ. Yet, folks, we need to be content with only a few that will be saved and rejoice knowing that someday, a day that is yet future, not when we elect enough Republicans, but a day that is yet future when the Prince of Peace will come and every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father Philippians 2:10. So we've seen a sovereign orchestration and we've seen now a symbolic procession. But thirdly, we see a senseless coronation, verse 8. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. You see, again, they thought, oh my, here's the great miracle worker, the one who has fed thousands, who has cast out demons, who has healed the sick, who has given blind, or, or given sight to the blind, who has caused the deaf to hear. He's even raised the dead. This is the one whom we've heard, the one who has absolutely dumbfounded us with his compelling teaching and his grasp of truth. Surely this must be the Messiah. Surely, therefore, he must be the one who will deliver us from Roman bondage and also meet all of our physical needs and bring in the long awaited kingdom. And so they take their garments and they threw their garments on the on the road. This, by the way, was an ancient custom that people would do when the king would come. The subjects would display their utter submission to the king's lordship. And also they would cut, cut palm branches, which was a symbol of, of joy, the joy of salvation. 
And again, we read in the text that there's this enormous multitude in front of Jesus and behind Jesus. And certainly you've got all of the multitude on either side. And they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Again, Hosanna means save now. An exclamation of supplication and adoration of prayer and praise. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by the way, there they quoted what I read earlier at communion out of Psalm 118, verse 26. Part of that series of psalms known as the Hallel. Hallel meaning praise that was sung at Passover, celebrating their deliverance from Egypt. And yet, tragically, isn't it sad that while they were shouting Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they failed to recall some other Old Testament passages that would have clearly communicated to them who Jesus really was and what he was up to. Matthew reminds us of this in verse 5. And again, I remind you, that is Zechariah 9, 9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. But isn't it sad? They didn't see that. Just like many people today, they only see what they want to see in Jesus. They want to redefine him to their own liking. Also in Zechariah 13:1, we read that in that day, which was referring to when Lord, the Lord would come and cleanse Jerusalem, he prophesied that a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Oh, but they didn't see that. They didn't see that he was coming to cleanse them from sin and impurity. They wanted a different kind of Messiah that would meet all of their physical needs. And sadly, like so many today, they had created a deliverer of their own making, one that had no resemblance of the true Savior. Also, we see another text that they obviously fail to remember. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, Beginning in verse two, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He is he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening fell or for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Obviously, they failed to remember this passage. Verse seven says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. And again, I'm reminded of the parallel of so much so-called worship today. This coronation ceremony 
of this day was senseless. It was rash. It was thoughtless. It was self-serving. John MacArthur says, and I quote, Although the shouts of the multitude were entirely appropriate and were in fact fulfillment of prophecy, the people had no idea of the true significance of what they were doing, much less of what Jesus would soon do on the cross in their behalf. They neither understood the Lord nor themselves. He intentionally did not enter Jerusalem with a powerful retinue of soldiers who would fight for him to the death. He entered instead with a ragtag multitude of ordinary people, most of whom, despite their loud proclamation of his greatness, would soon turn against him and none of whom would stand by him. Again, folks, what a senseless, irrational, pointless coronation. So much so, notice in verse 10 and 11. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitude were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now think about that. Amazing, after all of the hoopla, after all of the emotional frenzy and the mob hysteria, after it it all subsided, they weren't even able to accurately identify who Jesus was. They only say, well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Reminds me again of the grand celebrations of emotionally frenzied worshipers in so many places that praise the Lord and they worship. But once the music stops, once it all dies down and folks return to the workplace, they change their tune. Tone down the rhetoric a bit. No longer, as it was in this case in Matthew's day, no longer is Jesus the son of David, the Messiah King, coming in the name of Yahweh, the King of Israel, save us now, O Most High God. No, now he's got to be the politically and the religiously correct prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You see my point? Oh, dear friends, may I challenge you to examine your heart. As we close this morning, may I ask you, do you worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin? Or is He rather rather like the people of this day, seen as merely the deliverer from poverty and sickness and disappointment and poor self-esteem, lack of purpose in your life or whatever else it might be? And do you praise Him accurately? Accurately reflecting His character as well as accurately reflecting your heart? Or is it just a facade, a veneer? And does your praise in church match your praise in public? In other words, when you talk about the Lord and all that He is to you and all that He has done for us, all that He will do, do you find all of that kind of petering out when you get in the workplace? The other day at the barbershop, a man said to me, I I hear you're a pastor. And I said, yes, I, I am. 
And he said, uh, what church do you pastor? And I said, well, I pastor out here at Calvary Bible Church down the roadways. Oh, OK. He said, well, what is that Presbyterian or is that? Uh, and he named several other places. And and I said, well, no, we're just a group of Bible believing people. And then at that point, I wanted to, to let him know precisely who we were. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our savior, the one and only savior. And we got to talking a little bit and I had an opportunity, opportunity to tell him precisely who we believe Jesus is, what he's up to and what he's going to do. And you know what? I found myself, even as a pastor, as others were listening, feeling a sense of fear, knowing that might I, maybe I ought to tone this down a little bit. You ever get that way? Isn't it sad? That's just part of our flesh. That's why Paul prayed for boldness. And it's so easy for all of us when all of the music dies down and we leave the church to suddenly tone down the rhetoric, kind of soften things a little bit. And before you know it, we're just like these people. Who is this? Well, he, 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 uh, he, he's uh, uh, the, the prophet Jesus uh, from, from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, I, I thought you said a few minutes ago you were saying to him, save now, Hosanna, to the son of David. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest king of Israel. All You see what I'm saying? Well, dear friends, we all want to examine our hearts and we all want to be committed to worshiping the Lord, our Savior. In spirit and in truth. May God add his blessing to the reading and the teaching of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, it is such a joy knowing that even though you came the first time in humility, that you're coming again in glory. Lord, we rejoice with joy unspeakable, knowing that these days of suffering and at times persecution and frustration and dealing even with our own sin are someday going to be over. Lord, thank you for the taste of eternal glory that we can have even when we come together and fellowship with one another. Even as we immerse ourselves in your word and your spirit speaks to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you will just continue to bless us as your people. Give us great boldness as we go into the marketplace to share precisely who you are. And Lord, finally, I would as always pray for anyone that does not know you as their savior. Lord, may today be the day they confess you as the one and the true God, the only one that can save them from their sins. May today be the day that they experience that miracle of the new birth. We commit them to you and plead with you on their behalf. Thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.